This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Welcome to DSC's Campfires with Larry Wysoon, a unique blend of hunting, fishing, wildlife conservation, and the outdoor lifestyle. DSC's Campfires is brought to you by DSC conservation, education, and hunter advocacy. Hornady, accurate, deadly, dependable. Trigicon, brilliant aiming solutions. Taurus, award-winning pistols and revolvers. Mossberg, American built, American strong. Habit, our gear, your adventure. Welcome back to the campfire. Last week we had Mr. Shane Mahoney and we were talking about the wildlife uh, initiative and, and several different initiatives, if you will, and the, uh, the harvest initiative. And it's such a pleasure to have this gentleman here and, and, and gentleman in, in the truest sense of the word. And I uh, kind of look at him more as a Texan every day than, <laughs> than, from, than a Newfoundlander or a Newfoundlander. What's the pronunciation? Newfoundlander. Newfoundlander. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> Shane, thank you so much for being back with us. Let's continue this discussion. We kind of ended last week about talking about essentially how we as humans are so very similar in so many different ways. And really, animal, we are animals when you get right down to it. <laughs> let's, 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 I would love for you to continue that discussion a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think the... Um you know, if you go, if you trace the history of humanity and the history of our species, of course, we all know that the um, the early um, civilizations of, of human beings, the indigenous peoples across the world, uh, essentially held that view. I mean, they they didn't really see a difference between themselves and right. The they they called the wolf their brother or the bear this or their you know, and it, it was not just something that. Um, was reconstructed by historians or anthropologists who spent time with these people sort of after the fact. I mean, we know from the records of those cultures themselves and their oral histories and so forth, that, you know, it was not uncommon, even here, for example, in North America, 
for Native Americans to sit around uh, and discuss uh, other animals as equals and say things such as, you know, you know, we have to move on. Our brothers, the beaver, have now flooded out all of this low country and we cannot right. move our horses through it easily anymore. So we have to do this or we have to intervene or whatever it might be. Uh, if they killed an animal, the kind of sacred uh, process they had and the many, 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 the hundreds of variations that are out there on how they treated particular species, like if they some nations, if they harvested a bear, for example, which was always seen as a very special sacred yes, animal. Yes, sure. Um, you know, in some cases, of course, they could eat the animal, but in often when they did so, they had to bury the bones after they had consumed it and so on. In other words, essentially do a burial for the remnants of right, the animal. Right, yes, sir. There were all these kinds of things that um, just constantly reinforced in a continuous way the idea that human beings and all other wild, all other animals and plants for that matter were part of an an interconnected system and that no one had a special place above the other. And this is why indigenous peoples were often so manifestly grateful. I mean, that's one of the great characteristics of, of, of their cosmology or of their view of the world. The gratefulness that they often articulated about the animals that they relied upon. The Plains Indians, for example, with the bison. Right. I mean, there's innumerable records of people who witnessed it in real time of how the Native American Plains Indians, the horse Indians, we, as we came to think about them, right. yes, sir. Uh, about how they felt about this one particular animal. And, you know, with the disappearance of that, of that animal through, you know, excessive commercial killing and in some cases through attempts to to deny those nations of, of a food supply uh, and therefore to end the, you know, the longest war in American history, which was the war with the Native Americans. We tend to forget this, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, the expressions that the Native Americans had about this, talking about how, you know, when the buffalo disappeared, my people's hearts fell to the ground and they will never rise again. You know, these are these are these are very intimate kinds of expressions that you don't really hear from us today. No, right? no. As much as we love wildlife and care for wildlife, you'd be hard pressed to find someone who would put it in those terms. So I think that uh, what we're really talking about in our recognition of ourselves as animals is not reinventing anything at all. It's really going back to Borel, but for returning the vast majority of our time on Earth as a species right. was exactly how we felt. After agriculture first, around 11,000 years ago, things began to change somewhat. But you have to remember, agriculture didn't all of a sudden explode and was everywhere, right? It, it took different forms in different places. And much of that agriculture, just like the agriculture of Native Americans, was small, relatively small scale, mm -hmm. and it was on land, public land, if you will, if they saw <laughs> right. it. Um, and they were, again, the custodians of it, but they, they knew that it was the land, the earth, that was giving them the, you know, the squash and, and the corn and the, the maize and, and so on and so forth that, the, that they were growing. And so it was only really with kind of 
you know, the last couple of thousand years, and then, of course, with the Industrial Revolution, that we really began to sort of see ourselves in a kind of a different way. You know, we had all this machinery that could do all this labor that we used to engage in. Our hands were dirty with the earth. We smelled of the earth. We spent time in the earth. We, we harvested bare, you know, we did all that wild harvesting along with raising crops. Right. That's how we made it. Yes. Um, and so this idea of thinking of ourselves as animals and then the corollary that we therefore look upon the earth as our home and the earth as what sustains us. I mean, this is not some newfangled kind of religion, if you will, you know. No. This is just going back and adopting what I think were the better views that we had. And of all of us had. The, the peoples who lived in, in Amazonia, the, the peoples who lived in the mountainous parts of Central Asia, the people who lived in Southeast Asia, the people who lived in Europe, the people who lived in Africa. You know, we, we, we all shared this kind of common realistic understanding that the earth was what we depended upon but we turned that of course into a spiritual kind of expression as well about the earth which only served to elevate its importance in our lives and I think this is really it's a lot to hope for I know in the world when we look outside our window here but you know it's a it's it's still I think something that has deep appeal and it has deep appeal to young people, and it has very deep appeal to old people. This is a very interesting thing about this. It's not just, you know, kind of a young, what we might have called at one time, Larry, a hippie movement or yes, something, right. you know what I mean? <laughs> it's, it's, eh, but there is this love of this kind of thinking by young minds of, 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 you know, humans between the ages of, you know, let's say 12 and 25 or something. But there's also a love of this thinking by people as they become older and as they approach the end of their lives, they're very open to this kind of thinking. So we have these two bookends of, uh, of our communities, the wise old and the, the young explorer, if you will, uh, and both of them, it's remarkable. Both of them find it very easy to come to an understanding of this when I, when I speak to them. And I'm not saying that people in between, you know, say 30 to 60, let's say, don't get that. Right. But there's just an openness and a receptivity to that kind of thinking about the younger and the much older people that I find I don't know. It's like a, it's like completing the circle, you know. Do you think it's something that's innate? I do. And then people just kind of suppress it or kind of I do. lose sight? I do. I think it is innate. I think it's totally innate. And I think that's why I think all our phobias are innate, as I right. talk about, you know. We don't have any modern phobias. We should, be, we should be frightened to death of cars. They kill more people than anything else out there, for <laughs> God's sake. But yes. we don't. I mean, all of our phobias are ancient. That, that's innate. Spiders, snakes, right. you know, heights, you know, storms, all this kind of thing. Uh, and so I believe that this is innate. And what happens, of course, is the human animal is very easily, we're drawn to novelty. We're drawn to new things. So as we mature, you know, we have the opportunity. We take jobs. We see all the commodities that are available to us in society today that are produced, We've come to believe that the more money we acquire, the more of that we can have. And I think to an extent, yes, we get sidetracked. 
you know, we fall into a space right. where we forget what some of, not all of us, but, no. but lots of us, lots of us, and maybe all of us at some point, at some point li- right. in our lives do that kind of thing. And uh, and I don't think that's that's not to criticize people. No, that's just no, 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 to no. say that, that this is a phenomenon. But I I fundamentally believe that it is possible to convince a significant number of people to adopt th- these kinds of values. And if we could if we could do two things, if we could convince society, and I and we should be teaching this in schools, by the way. If we, that's where we should be starting, and in our homes. Right. You know, my children know that my philosophy, and it is their philosophy, that we are all animals. They, they were raised with that idea in their minds. I think we should be trying to convince more institutions to teach that kind of reality to, to, to children and parents to do the same. And I think the other thing that we should be trying to, to emphasize much more than lots of things we teach them in school is that the land and waters of our nations are sacred and that fundamentally they are our life support systems. Now, you think of all the things that are taught in school. And let me ask you, Larry, let me ask the people who will be listening to this podcast, is there anything more important than that message? No. No. No, there really truly isn't. I mean, (laughs) when you start... Listening to them, you know, in your mind, you go, it immediately rises to the top. Absolutely, it does. And it's a very simple thing. And it doesn't have to be offend anybody. It doesn't have to offend anybody's religion. It no. doesn't have to offend anybody's political beliefs. It no. doesn't have to. It, it's a completely inoffensive position that simply asks people to accept the fact that they are dependent on nature the same as the as the wild elk or the or the or the or the or the or the crane or the goose or, or whatever which they accept is true uh, you know that those animals are dependent on it and then to take them to the next step whether they are landowners or not is not the issue no it's just that they should understand collectively that that land is the sacred thing that keeps us healthy and enables us to survive and therefore what follows from that is the private landowner who does good things for the land ought to be exalted and the institutions in our governments that look after the public lands whether at state or federal levels and do good things for those lands they should be exalted and we should therefore get away from the conflict that often exists between public private lands kinds of things that are out there all that land is sacred to it and critical to it. It is. You know, we can't say, well, we're going to have the human population of the world, every human, the little humans, the middle humans, the big humans, the old humans, that we're going to have them survive only on private land and and let public (laughs) land go to hell. Nor can we do it. Or vice versa. We can't do it. No. It's, It's a ridiculous proposition. But I think if we got those basic elements in it, you know, if I could see little humans coming out of kindergarten, you know, already thinking, you know, maybe carrying out their little jars of dirt, literally, you know, to bring right. home a little jar of dirt that they plant a little seed in, yes. something like this. And, you know, this does not have to be a billion dollar reconstruction of the education system. No, 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 no. And I think that's what we really ought to be, uh, ought to be doing. And I know... But one thing about little humans is they're fascinated with with anything that creeps, crawls, slithers, or flies. Yes, yes. 
they are. Right. And you show me one that's not, and I'll tell you, you have a troubled child. (laughs) I'm serious. I I totally, totally agree, because I've seen that. Yes. I've seen the good side, and I've seen the bad side of that. It's very worrisome when you see the bad side of it, you know. Interesting. One of the things that we were talking about at TWA is that we're, we're here generally people think in terms of numerous acres of land. And my deal is, is if you own a home in town and have a backyard, a front yard, if you live in an apartment and you have got a flower pot sitting on the back yep. of this little open area that you can walk to yep. to breathe polluted air as far as I'm, you are an influencer as far as wildlife and as far as habitat and all those other things are concerned. And to me, if, if we can take what you're saying here and incorporate that, incorporate that into the, the urban situations and utilizing the Absolutely. hay. Just like, I, I, I love the fact that you mentioned the, the little bowl of, of soil. Yeah. Think what you can teach and think, and that to me brings questionings. You know, how yeah. does this work? Why does this work? You know, what yeah. can I do? And, yeah. and to me, that would be such a great, great thing to do to get into schools and that system to where just, okay, we're going to plant and yeah. you're going to have to take care of it. You're going to make sure it's going to get water. Where's water coming from? You know, and all those other kind of things. Too. Exactly. And uh, I think too, you know, we spend a lot of time in our kind of uh, history of ideas and in our philosophies and in our religions talking about uh, this term, you know, miracle. Right, and uh, all religions have an emphasis on, on miraculous happenings and yes. people who have been involved <laughs> with them. But you know, we're able to give every little child on this planet uh, their first miracle. Um, you know, in that they can take a piece, a, a little jar of earth, they can take a seed and they can put it in there, and they can add a little water, and they can create. A plant. Yes. That's a miracle. That's a miracle. And that's a miracle that they can all understand. And if they understood that that miracle is repeated gazillions and gazillions and gazillions of times across the planet, and it's those miracles that make our lives possible. Yes. uh, Then I think, you know, we're able to teach them a different way of thinking about the earth. Right. uh, There's no doubt things would totally change. And maybe this is that change of, like we're talking about the evolution and the involvement of how we get started on these things. Yeah. Yeah. No, I firmly believe, and I believe all these things are possible. I think, you know, I think some people are probably doing just as I say anyway, you know, just of their own volition. Right. But I think we could make these things much more systematic and much more ingrained in our systems. And, in today's very polarized world, you always have to, as soon as you conceive an idea or conceive a philosophy of, of life, you, unfortunately, you always have to think about today who is going to take that and twist it into some kind of polarized view. It's, it's a, just a reality. It's the way the world is. Um, but I do believe that these messages uh, are immune to that. Uh, you know, because mm-hmm. they really don't confront no. people in a in a in a confrontational or negative way. No. I really, I really believe. So I think there is a, I think there's a future here in this kind of effort, and of course, I think all groups in society should be involved in this, but the hunting community ought to be in the forefront of this kind of thinking because we have the experiential knowledge of being involved in those miracles all the time. 
the deer comes from the forage that it consumes and the forage that it consumes comes from the earth. And we know if the right regimes of water are not present or the temperatures are completely out of whack or whatever might be the case, we know that that forage is not ideal for those particular animals and that therefore those animals will will express that poorer forage or that better forage, right. depending on what it is. So we, we have all this knowledge within us and... I think all that knowledge is completely germane to this new world vision, and uh, and this is this kind of one health idea that uh, we referred to in our last uh, discussion. And I uh, I think we ought to we ought to get on with this, Larry. I think so too. How would somebody, as we wind this down, because I know you've got other speaking engagements you're going to, how would be the best way to contact you to learn more about some of the programs that you're involved in and maybe even to get in touch with you? You're such a phenomenal, unbelievable, great speaker that uh, you, you, you create things in people's hearts that nobody else can, quite oh, frankly. Thank you, Larry, very and much. that's the true I, truth. I, I, <laughs> how does somebody get in touch with you sure. should they wish to have you speak to them or to, to learn more about the you're involved in so many great programs right now. How do they get in touch with you? Well, Conservation Visions is the is the organization I lead. It's it's Visions, which is plural, because I believe there's many ways of yes, seeing sir. the world. That's why I didn't call it Conservation Vision. It's not just mine. There right. are many visions right. that are out there. Um, and they can easily Google that, but they can Google me and find me. You know, I have offices and staff and so on and so forth. And I'm always happy to speak to people about these issues so they can feel free to reach out to me. Thank you so much for all that you've done, what you're doing, and again, what you're going to do in the future. I, I love what we talked about here, and I hope a lot of people take that to heart because we can make a difference, and we, we're the ones who need to make the difference at this point. So, Absolutely. Shane, thank you so very much for doing this around the campfire. I can't wait to get you back here again in the future, <laughs> and uh, maybe the next time we do this, we can actually not be in a hotel room, but we can oh. be sitting around a campfire. And, uh, It'll be nice. It, we're, I'll, we'll make that happen. Thank you so very much. Ladies and gentlemen, join us right back here next week on DSC's Campfires. DSC's Campfires has also been brought to you by the Crown Bar in the Grange and Roundtop, Texas, Texas Wildlife Association, Double Nickel Taxidermy, H3 Whitetail Solutions, and Burnham Brothers Game Calls.